on this week's Devils in the Details. Defeat at Arsenal in heartbreaking fashion. But was it coming the whole game for an injury-ridden United side? United's approach in this match was very different to the Arsenal games from last season. We'll discuss why that's the case and what it meant. We'll also discuss the debut of Rasmus Hoyland and how it changed the match for the Red Devils. First of all, excuse my voice this week. I've been busy doing Welcome Week at university for my last year here. Um, But Case, you had an even crazier week because you made your debut wearing the number 11 shirt for Manchester United. How has that been for you? Did you enjoy your time playing against Arsenal at the Emirates? Yeah, you know, it would have been more enjoyable if we'd won that match, I think. But, uh, But yeah, very cool to see Hoyland make his debut. And yeah, I guess we'll get into the details in a little bit. Yeah, we got Hoyland's debut for roughly the second half of this episode, but uh, before we get into the Arsenal match, we're going to start with a quick note on United's deadline day activity here. They have brought in two players on loan. Uh, firstly, Sofiane Amrabat, and secondly, Sergio Regulon. Uh, both on loans, Amrabat was a 10 million euro loan with a 20 million option to buy at the end of the season, plus another potential 5 million euros in add-ons. Regulon was just a straight loan, United pay his wages, uh, no fee, no option to buy. We're going to do a deep dive on these next week, given the international break. Um, This gives us something to talk about. I think the two of us in particular are excited about Emrabat. Case, any quick thoughts on this before we move on to the Arsenal match? Yeah, I'll just say, with regard to Amrabat, this is functionally a purchase. Uh, 10 million euro loan fee basically guarantees you're going to be paying the buy clause unless like something catastrophic happens. Um, I think this move is huge. We'll, we'll go into greater detail next episode, but long story short, I think this is going to be an incredibly high-impact player for us. Yeah, we'll talk about it more next week and go straight into the Arsenal match for this week, starting with United at the back here and the clearest difference between the Arsenal match of this season and the Arsenal match of past seasons. That was that Onana completely changed the approach compared to last season. Um, Arsenal, I think, were struggling to press Onana a little bit in this match, in particular because he was just able to uh, get the ball past the first line consistently and allow United to actually play vertically through the lines. That seems like night and day compared to last season, doesn't it? Definitely. I mean, you can see in a couple of different ways, the effect it had. The few moments where Arsenal were able to trigger their pressing triggers and, you know, attempts to generate a high ball win just could not happen, did not happen um, because Onana was able to play through it. Beyond that, I think you could also see Arsenal sat off uh, a lot more because it was a lot harder to sort of force United into those triggers. Um, so you didn't see Arsenal really in a full man-to-man press very often in this match uh, high up the pitch. And I think that's that's down to Onana. And as a result, United had much more of a, of a foothold in possession in this match, though obviously it didn't necessarily lead to threat or control. 
Yeah, we'll get onto the threat and control in a second. United had 55% possession in the first half, I believe, here, and that was definitely due to Onana's presence, and probably the first time we've seen Ten Hogs United side come to a side like this Arsenal team and actually have more of the ball for a spell of the match. Um, what that allows you to do is, A, um, prevent long periods of the match in which the other team is able to sustain pressure on you, um, B, it allows you to keep the ball and progress through the thirds in a way that gives you higher probabilities of final third entries than going long. That's something we discussed a lot early on when United started playing the ball long with De Gea in goal. Um, and so you're welcome to go back to like probably the first 10 to 15 episodes of this podcast. That was a recurring theme every week. Um, but anything else to add on that? Yeah, I'll add... I think why this is noteworthy, because overwhelmingly, you know, you see statistics like, for instance, Arsenal had 81% field tilt in this match, which is essentially a measure of where the ball spends most of the match. And, and if, you have a, if you have a high field tilt percentage, it means that the ball spent most of the match in your opponent's half. Um, and there's no doubt that though United were able to play through the first line of Arsenal's press in this match, they still spent most of their time on the ball in their own half near their halfway line. However, I kind of want to emphasize the point that you were making there, which which is that what this does is it prevents you from having to sit in for long periods. And that that, that is valuable not just because, um, you know, having the ball allows you to create goals. It also allows your team to rest. And, you know, something you often hear people talk about in the context of United I think is why do they seem to lose their concentration? Why do, um, you know, these sort of weird goals seem to happen in the box in these big matches? The answer to that is when you're camped in, players fatigue. And, and that, that's true both physically and mentally. And you also just, the ball spends more time in your box. It's more likely for, thing, for weird things to happen. Um, so the significance of this is you keep your players fresher out of possession by having more time in possession, and you allow concentration levels to be higher, and you also just decrease the probability of a goal. Even if the ball is in your half, basically there's two ways that you can have an advantage in your opposition half. You can have the ball, which, you know, makes you more likely to score than your opponent, or the op- the opponent can have the ball and you can be in sort of like a, a triggered man-to-man press where you're more likely to gain possession than they are to play out. And so the way United were able to play out in this match you sort of avoided both of those outcomes where Arsenal's press wasn't sort of in a, in a triggered man-to-man ball-oriented, winning the ball-oriented pressing orientation often. And Arsenal also didn't have the ball for, you know, 30-minute stretches in United's half, which is something that we saw in the same fixture last year. So that I think I've maybe gotten a little away from where I started here, but main point being there's value in this even though United didn't create threat. It's a big step forward. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, it's pretty much entirely down to Onana because I don't think there were any other notable differences in the personnel or really the general play in the first half other than the fact that United were just able to get it from Onana to the back four or to the midfielders and play from there. But I'd say in spite of that, we'd both agree that United's buildup wasn't actually particularly successful in this match. While it didn't fail in the sense of giving away the ball and giving Arsenal high-value opportunities in transition, 
I do think it failed to consistently get United into the final third. Um, and Case and I rewatched this match together right before this, and we kind of boiled the issues and build up down to two things. The first of which was the technical execution of the players that played this match, particularly the defenders and some of the deeper midfielders um, in build up and some of the mistakes that they were making. Um, before we get into the second one, we'll talk about that a little bit. Case, you collected some stats from the match about this. Do you want to do you want to get into that briefly? Yeah. So the first thing I would start off with is the only real substantive difference in how United were building up in this match compared to other matches earlier this season is you saw a lot of Casemiro dropping into the back line in the second phase of buildup. Um, so United sort of forming a back three, Lisandro on one side, Casemiro in the middle, uh, Lindelof on the right, predominantly. Sometimes you would see Lindelof and Casemiro switched. I bring that up because I think it's important context for where we're about to go next, which is, like you said, these technical mistakes. I basically, we went through, as we were going through this match, I was just counting up... Um, instances where a United player had the ball not under a great deal of pressure. So I'm not talking about, you know, an instance where it would have been a technical feat to play through. I'm talking about instances where the player in question should have been able to execute a reasonably simple pass that that would have had more value than the one they attempted or, or failed. So with that in mind, basically have a I don't know how you would how you would want to call this an error sheet here. Just from the first half, this is first half stats, and then I'll, I'll add in the full match context. You had six in possession mistakes from Juan Masaka. These were predominantly instances where he got the ball on the right side, and there was a simple pass for him to play forward, and he just could not do it. Yeah, five of them were that, and then the sixth one was a miscontrolled pass from Casemiro that he should have been able to take into his stride. Yep. He had another one in the second half, so fewer in the second half, but he finishes with seven, which is twice as many as any other player. Uh, We talked about this before. He's just a liability. He makes it really hard to sustain pressure, to build out. He also had a few other instances where he was under pressure and gave the ball away. We aren't even counting those. Obviously, those you probably shouldn't fault a player for, but... A player who's better under pressure has a higher chance of executing in those situations as well. Beyond that, early on in the match, you saw Casemiro uh, just hit some bizarre balls under no pressure when he was in that back line, like I talked about. I think the usage of Casemiro in the back line kind of speaks to an acknowledgement that he's not going to add value in matches like this turning on the ball. However, he does have solid passing range. Uh, and I think that's what they sort of tried to unlock. And to his credit, he did have a couple of really nice moments playing out from this deeper area. But early on, really struggled and had the second most of these technical errors uh, in build-up. And then other than that, you saw uh, a noteworthy number from Anthony. Anthony had two uh, major technical errors. Yeah, those, those were the players who had multiple. What does this even mean? Uh, in the scheme of things... Basically just bring this up because United were obviously able to penetrate Arsenal's first line. They weren't able to consistently penetrate their second line. I think a big part of that is two things. One, Arsenal were playing very narrow in their sort of second phase out of possession shape. What that means is it's very difficult to play through the middle. Predominantly, uh, or, or, or even more so when you have midfielders who can't turn on the ball which United have, 
They have in this match they were playing three midfielders who are really unwilling to turn on the ball. They were playing a center forward who, though is typically known for his hold up play, really offered absolutely nothing in hold up play. And so what that meant was they spent a lot of time with the ball in wide areas. And the second thing is they didn't switch the ball, which really I think is how they could have gotten to this Arsenal side. Uh, Aaron and I were lucky enough to get to rewatch this match with a wide angle lens so we could see the whole pitch. There were a lot of opportunities to switch the ball uh, that players like Casemiro, Lindelof uh, did not take. So all of that is to say uh, these technical errors, they prevented us from being able to play through the thirds. It basically the problem has shifted forward from last season, right? You had before you had a situation where the ball was going back to the goalkeeper and then straight to the forwards, and then you're hoping you're going to win these 50 50s near the half line. Um, this season, what we're seeing a lot more of is United are able to get to the back four or to the deeper midfielders and build up, but then they either really struggle to play through the lines vertically or they are lumping the ball long, which I think was the thing you wanted to talk about next. Yeah, so do you want to talk about that? Because I think... Yeah, I can. So another thing that United did that I think they did before, but um, l- let me put it this way. there were United generally in these matches last season against big sides, sides that press high, they played very long range from the goalkeeper, from the back line, um, trying to hit their forwards in different situations um, from deep buildup and not actually trying to play through the lines vertically by getting the ball on the ground or through passing combinations. There are two types of balls that they tended to play in those scenarios. Number one was playing the ball into a contested 50-50 area and then either trying to win the first ball or win um, a sort of pinball match with the opposition where the ball would bounce and then you're trying to be the first team to get on the ball. The second type of ball would be when the opposition line is high, so you try to hit your forwards in behind from the back with these balls over the top. In particular, I don't think, or I should say, I don't think in general that Case or myself is a fan of those passes. We think that they lead to chances and goals very infrequently and lead to United losing the ball very frequently. And I'd say a big difference between United's ability to play through Arsenal versus Arsenal's ability to play through United in this match were more than a half dozen attempts to play passes like that from pretty much everybody in the back four. Um, I don't think we saw any from Dalo and Wambasaka, but Casemiro, Eriksen, Lindelof, and Lissandro all tried these at different points. Onana as well tried a few that neither of us were a fan of, and they hurt United's ability to be able to maintain possession in this match. And I don't think any of them, except for one that Maguire played that led to Hoyland, I think, winning a foul off Gabriel later in the match, uh, came off at all. And even that Maguire one I thought was quite lucky with a piece of ingenuity from Hoyland. Um, Yeah, I I, I would just sort of jump in here and and say, this is something that I still don't entirely understand. uh, Because in a lot of instances with these balls, there is not a clear run being targeted. It's just kind of space, but nobody's attacking the space. And often there's alternatives that make sense and are, would be progressive. So to me, this is something that's very confusing, something I don't think Aaron or I has a good explanation for yet. Um, however, I will say, and I'm, we're sort of jumping the gun a little bit here, Hoyland comes on later in the match and you can see space for this approach to be effective with a player like him. Um, 
because he can actually physically disrupt center backs and create space when the ball comes over the top. So something to keep an eye on because I think that could really enhance United's game if this became a viable strategy. But for the time being, I don't even really, in a lot of instances, I don't understand what the idea is, uh, much less, you know, appreciate the the execution and, and think that it was the right choice. A few other things, unless Aaron, you want to keep on talking about this issue. Yeah, so having talked about sort of the technical errors and the decision-making errors with these balls over the top, I think this is a good place to mention how Arsenal plays into what happened in this match. I'll say this much about Arsenal. Arsenal's strength as a team, what allows them to sort of contend at borderline elite level, is their out-of-possession approach. And more specifically, I would say it's how defensively oriented everything they do is, both out-of-possession and in-possession. This is a team that's, I'd say, very aggressive with its rest defense, keeps a lot of numbers back, Uh, And I would say when they have the ball, the primary concern is numbers back before it is creating goals. Um, And I would say to a certain extent, that's true out of possession as well. We were talking about how Onana changes this game because Arsenal can't go man to man as aggressively in the final third. And as a result, create high high ball wins as frequently. Definitely an aspect of that is Onana. Also an aspect of it is, I think, an intentional choice on Arsenal's behalf to approach the game differently. Uh, Probably because Onana is playing, but it's worth noting, definitely to a certain extent, they were okay with some of the things that United were doing. They were okay with the first line of the press being broken. They were okay with United transitioning into their half as long as it wasn't wasn't at speed, which is fundamentally what they avoided. This is a team that's really compact, um, especially centrally, which means you don't get these sort of broken moments They don't even need to commit tactical fouls that frequently, predominantly because they just always have numbers uh, and compactness. So I kind of want to, I think like that's where sort of the, the key open play difference in this match is Arsenal's forward players and midfielders ability to penetrate centrally against United, which I don't think they did in like a really high volume, which is why they didn't create a ton of chances. Um, But it obviously, they were able to do it at a much higher level uh, in the middle third than United were. And that's why they were able to have more territory. Yeah, I'm trying to think if if there's anything I can add. I mean, I'm not sure the extent to which you touched upon this, but I think it also, to some extent, costs them in their creative ability. Um, I think the fact that Arsenal keeps so many players back in rest defense and have a relatively conservative pressing approach or had one in this match uh, meant that they weren't really creating that much in transition situations and they weren't relative to how much territory they had especially in the second half I don't think they created that much in possession situations Um, I, I agree with what you're saying that I think I think the two key differences between Arsenal and United in this match that would make me say Arsenal were better um, were Arsenal's ability to play into the final third so that they were spending as much time as they could in United's half. Um, and then the other one would be their productivity from set pieces, in particularly corners, where they drilled United the entire match. United could not really contain them from those situations. And eventually they did get the winner from a corner, um, which felt like it was... It was very lucky, but it wasn't the first corner that it felt like Arsenal could have scored from in that match. 
Um, whereas I don't think United particularly threatened from attacking set pieces here at all. Yeah, yeah, I, I think this is a good opportunity for us to sort of transition into a conversation about the player profile differences here and how that plays a a part, because I totally agree. I think set pieces are, is the largest margin between these two sides is is set piece execution. Arsenal are an elite set piece side. United are a poor set piece side. Um, And, and ultimately, I mean, that made the difference in this match. Arsenal score the winner from a set piece. Um, United create almost no threat from any of their set pieces in this match. Um, But the, yeah, the other thing, the territory thing, I think, A, comes down to having midfielders who receive the ball uh, and then are able to turn, p- take up space, carrying the ball, um, and yeah, in that way, establish territory. And then the other thing is, I think in this match, the forwards that United fielded versus the forwards that Arsenal fielded what you have is somebody in Enketia who can create purchase when he receives the ball, sort of receive under pressure, turn, even if it's not completely, even if it's not a full 180, turn 90 degrees, lay off, create that forward momentum that allows you to get into the final third. Uh, United didn't get that from Martial. Martial was a complete non-factor in this match, which he kind of is consistently these days. Um, Really, really, really poor from him. And you could see how stark the difference was when you had a different striker come on. And and really, United's best stretch in the second half and arguably their best stretch in the game uh, were those first 10, 15 minutes where Hoyland comes on. Yeah, and that definitely ties back into the Amrabat signing and I think getting Mount back. Um, I thought for the most part, Erickson was actually very effective in this match. I think this is one of, um, one I don't of Erickson's think... best ever performances for United in a big match. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. And he does have some share of responsibility for the goal. I don't think primary share for the, for the first Arsenal goal, to be clear. Um, and then I don't think he particularly does the thing you're describing where he turns no. and then carries the ball forward. Yeah, that's the biggest And that's thing. probably what you're missing and what you're looking to get out of someone like Sofiane Amrabat, who does that in volume throughout games and knows how to read build-up scenarios so that he can pick out opportunities to do that. Um, that's something that I think Casemiro failed to do a couple times in this match in particular. Um, but yeah, I I would say... In spite of Erickson being very good in this match, I think that was a clear miss for United. Um, Rice did that to some extent for Arsenal. Odegaard does it a lot. Um, Havertz, I, I would say, had a mixed bag, but I think he did it once or twice at least um, in a way that created space. That Those small differences play a big role because if each of your midfielders is going to do that a couple times that's X amount more yeah. entries you're going to have into the final third. And then if they make better decisions in the final third, they're going to keep the ball. Yeah. I mean, let's say United's midfielders do it a to- like like one time each per game, which is generous. I would say, honestly, I can't even remember a time where a United midfielder picked up the ball and, and drove with the ball in this match. But let's pretend each did it once, so three times. And let's say Arsenal's midfielders conservatively each did it three times individually you wind up with like a margin of nine to three 
which when you consider like each time you drive with the ball like that and get into the final third, it leads to an extended spell of possession. Like that is a huge difference in terms of territorial dominance um, and your ability to penetrate through the middle. Um, I, I would add that I don't think this is the only reason United couldn't get into the into the final third. I think they really should have been a lot more aggressive about switching the ball. I think this Arsenal team were really narrow and having watched it with the wide angle cam, I, I'm there, there were so many times that switches into a ton of space were on and not made. Um, in particular, right side of the back four to the left side of the front, the attack yeah, to, to really Dallow or Rashford, or Rashford, predominantly Rashford. Um, yeah. And I think that would have made a huge difference in this match. But anyway, all of this is to say player profiles and in some instances, raw quality. Like for instance, I think Eddie Nketiah is a much, much, much better player than uh, Anthony Martial. And the same is true of Gabriel Jesus. Um, can make a huge difference in terms of your, in terms of these matches, in terms of these matches. And so that I think sets us up to talk about Hoyland. It sets us up perfectly. So Hoyland comes on and almost immediately you solve what I would call the third issue United were having a build up. If we talked about two, um, I, I know I said that there were two that we categorized earlier, but I think this is a third one. Um, if the first one was the technical execution of the players you played, the second one was the turning and carrying ability of the midfielders, then the third one is having an outlet that you can rely on uh, to have some level of proficiency in uh, taking down balls, getting onto balls in behind, um, and turning them into either one fouls, possession retention, or even attacking situations. And I think... This is something that definitely puts a big asterisk on the conversation about the long ball over the top, uh, the bad decision with the uh, ability to play that ball to a runner, because I think it's a little bit, I don't think it's a good ball, but I also don't think the runs from the attackers have been particularly emphatic to get onto those balls, Um, whereas I think a couple of them, like I said, one from Maguire, turned into a stray foul win from a pass that I don't even think was particularly good from Hoyland. And this comes down to his ability. Yes. So Hoyland won the foul from Gabrielle, I guess. Um, Yeah. And so what did Hoyland add in this? I think there was a clear improvement in the holdup ability. He was having great success holding off Gabrielle. In my opinion, drawing a number of questionable challenges from Gabrielle. Um, I think he was successful in laying the ball off to teammates. I think he made good decisions in who he chose to lay it off to. I think his pace allowed him to get in behind to balls that were played in behind more than once um, in this cameo, where he was able to latch onto a pass that Martial would have been nowhere near. Um, And then I think he had some moments of good movement in the box. Um, One thing you'll notice is there's this play where Rashford goes on this amazing dribble and takes out three players and plays the ball in. And I'll point out two things. One is, if you're able to take off your eyes from Rashford's amazing dribbling in that moment, um, what you'll see is Hoyland actually muscling and challenging a defender to try and create space that he can use to get the ball into to try and get a shot off. He fails, but it's really good striker play. 
And the other thing you'll notice is that Hoyland is attacking the last line so consistently from this play that Arsenal's defense is deeper and closer to their own goal than it has been throughout the match prior to that. And what that allows United to do is actually get into the space in front of that back four without being challenged the way they were when Martial was kind of half running between the channels and half dropping off in situations where he should have been running in behind. Yeah. Hoyland looks pretty good, huh? (laughs) I would add a few things. A, this sort of reminded me of something that Ralph Rangnick said when he came into United. And he, he basically discussed how the physical level at the club was just terrible compared to what it should have been. Um, and he's, he, you know, he talked about, he, he made a, bi- a bunch of big statements, talked about how the squad needed to be completely overhauled, you know, top to bottom. Uh, and I think really at the root of that, and you could, you could see this in his selection decisions, but, you know, like he played players like Anthony Longa and Fred. Um, this is a, a guy who I think was ultimately concerned with the physical level, uh, specifically not just you know, strength and size, which is one aspect of it, but you're a bit like pace and your ability to cover ground and be energetic. And I think Hoyland's Hoyland kind of emphasizes this idea um, really drastically because you can see the difference between somebody like Martial and Hoyland in this match. Hoyland had the, the benefit of coming in against tired legs. So I think the the physical dominance that you saw was a little... Exa- exaggerated uh, compared to yeah. what he's really going to have. One thing that came up to me immediately is that I don't think Hoyland uh, stands out as drastically physically as he did in this cameo um, from past watchings that we did when United signed him. He's still definitely a really good athlete, very fast, relatively strong, can hold off center backs, can do the hold up and link up, can run in behind, but it felt like he was effective in this match to an extent that was so vast against such good players um, that Arsenal have at the back that some of it had to be due to playing against tired legs or the fact that his legs were fresher than the Arsenal players that had been playing the entire match. Yeah, yep, totally agreed. I I definitely think there's an aspect of that. However, I do think that at the end of the day, this is a a very high-end athlete, even relative to the Premier League. I think he'll be a a pretty dominant athlete. Um, Anyway, I bring this up because you sort of see in the last 18 months, an evolution in this squad, which has been players who don't have legs, who can't keep up physically, um, sort of being identified and phased out. Uh, if you go back and look at that sort of Rangnick squad, uh, the team that he took over, you had players like Alex Tillis, uh, Ronaldo, um, I think by that point, Cavani, Pogba, who physically just was not there anymore at that point. Matic, I'm sure I'm forgetting names. There are there are definitely more players. It was it was a squad full of players that just could not cover ground, and so you know you had technical issues. But I think more than anything, what's been identified is that there have been huge physical deficiencies, uh, and and more than anything, the players who have had physical deficiencies are getting rooted out. Sort of, uh, how do you say, ruthlessly more so than the players with technical deficiencies. Because you still see players like, for instance, Wambasaka playing regularly. But it's, I mean, Erickson, you could see him fading physically at the, end of la- at the end of last season. And you saw him replaced by a player like Mount, who is a plus athlete in the Premier League. Um, so I just thought that was a sort of interesting aside. You can continue to see this progression with somebody like Hoyland. 
uh, in comparison to someone like, someone who, like Martial, who I think is physically kind of toast. Um, yeah. So I think if you look at the first choice 11 of this side now, you would find no matter what 11 you come up with, I, I'm, I think I'm safe in saying that anyone's 11 now will not have Ericsson in it. Any 11 that you have is going to be one with very, very, very strong athletes, uh, for the most part. There are one or two exceptions, like maybe you might argue Anthony, um, in possession is not a particularly dominant athlete, but for the most part, these are players who can keep up with the, the demands of modern football without much struggle. Yeah, I don't, I think Anthony isn't a, a quick twitch athlete, uh, at a high level. Yeah. I don't think he can beat players due to his athleticism, yeah. but I do think he is, um, he can keep up with the game. Yeah, I, I think, like, this is sort of really random that I bring this up, and it, it, this has nothing to do with human physiology as far as, as far as I'm aware, but, Fish, there's basically kind of two different types of muscles in fish. Uh, one of them is red muscle and one of them is white muscle. White muscle fish, um, I think they are supposed to be long distance swimmers. They It's like slower twitch muscles. And so they are slower, but they have longer endurance. And then red muscle in fish is related to speed. Um, so like tuna, red muscle, they're extremely fast. Um, it's actually the other way around. around. So white is short, fast verse and red is slow endured swimming according to the national Institute of health. It's been about 10 years since I took a marine biology course, but, um, anyway, this information is, is barely relevant, but I, for some reason felt the need to bring it up. I bring it up because I think Anthony sort of has like the, the red muscle (laughs) where (laughs) I think he's an, a really high, added value endurance athlete in the Premier League. I think he has extremely high endurance. He, you know, plays end-to-end of the pitch at a really high level. I don't think he is an, a value-added quick-twitch athlete in the Premier League. I think he's below average, probably. Um, like maybe a Rashford would be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas I think Rashford is probably very high above average quick-twitch. I think it, it's up to up for debate how high his endurance is. Um and not really relevant to the conversation. Anyway, I probably shouldn't have compared people to fish in this, but now that you all... We're going to get like 18 comments about this. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> now that you know um, that I've compared all of United's players to fish, back to Hoyland. Uh, yeah, I think the big difference here was the, the, his ability to duel physically with these center backs. I, I, he, he had Gabrielle in, in a very bad spot. I think if he'd had an extra 10 minutes on the pitch something would have I mean he did really create something I think he was pretty close to a penalty call pretty close to a point blank shot on goal from that Rashford take on you mentioned um yeah this is a guy with great physical tools and then like you mentioned a lot of really nice movement he had one transition where Rashford I think winds up taking a shot where Hoyland I think makes the wrong run but in general all all good signs here like in terms of did he look more like the version of him at Atalanta or the version of him at, for Denmark, which we talked about in late July? In those 30 minutes, he looked, more, looked a lot more like the Denmark player than the Atalanta player, uh, which makes sense because he was playing as a lone center forward, uh, a true lone center forward. So we'll see how this plays out. I, am, uh, I don't think you could have asked for a better debut 30 minutes uh, with the exception of, you know, a goal. Yeah, I think with that, we should look to round up the match. So I'll... Try to conclude it with this. On a whole, 
case, how would you compare this performance against Arsenal to the ones from last season? And do you feel United deserve to lose this match by a 3-1 score margin? Okay, this was a drastic improvement on the same fixture last season away at the Emirates, the match we lost 3-2. Um, in January. In January. We were camped in that whole match. It was not a good performance. We got battered. I think the XG was like 3.5 to 1 or something like that. Uh, and, and a big part of that 1 was Lisandro's corner, which was like a diving header from a second ball on a corner. Um, in general, did United deserve to lose 3-1? No. Lose, probably. Um you know, you, you you concede a huge margin at set pieces, and you don't have territorial dominance. Dominance. You know, if United w- were playing a different team, let's say, like pick a random team, Crystal Palace, and the same things happened, I would say, like all the way around. Like if if United were Arsenal, and uh, Crystal Palace, Crystal Palace were United. Were United um, and United, you know, had the territorial dominance, had the set-piece margin, and they win the game, I would have said, fair result, but not a great, like, not uh, not a dominant performance here. You need to create more chances. Palace were compact, um, and we weren't able to pin them, create high ball wins. Uh, yeah. or For what it's worth, I don't think, I think, Putting a big emphasis on Arsenal's high ball wins isn't necessarily fair because I don't think their press is predicated around that anymore. But I think that's arguably a flaw um, in how they approach the game. And you kind of talked about limitations of how they play. Um, But yeah, I think Arsenal deserved to win this match. I think the margin was not that wide. And I I think usually the margins are pretty wide. Like Usually United gets smacked when they go away to these teams. And this was not uh, that. And you can very clearly see how they can improve. Uh, I think this is another step in the right direction, even though the, the scoreline doesn't show it. Yeah, I mean, it's a way to one of, I would say, the best five sides in Europe with four first-team injuries in Varane, Shaw, Mount, and Hoyland, I guess, who came on later. And then you had a further two signings who didn't have the chance to come in for those players. Um, Regulon, um, Amrabat, then you had injuries added to backups like Malasia, Lindelof got hurt during the match, Lissandro got hurt during the match, and even still, you managed to hold out till injury time. I don't think you got completely battered. I think they got outshot something like 16 to 10. I don't think the XG margins were absurd. Um, Garnacho scored a winner that was disallowed. I'm not going to, again, we don't really do ref complaints on this podcast, but there were some questions around penalty shouts that on another day could have gone United's way. Did United deserve to lose this match? I think losing is a more fair outcome based on the the flow of the game than United winning. For sure. Yes. Um, For sure. Arsenal were the better side in this match. Um and most times you'll find that this would result in a draw or an Arsenal win. But I don't think it's I don't think it's a bad performance. I think it's an improvement and yeah, I think there's a lot to look forward to. A lot of positive takeaways from this. I know you're going to be looking at the league table and going United are 10th, 11th after four games, two losses, only six points, but they've played two of the big six sides away or the big seven, I guess if you count Newcastle. 
Um, they've come away with six points, so I don't think the damage on the scoreboard or on the league table is that bad. I'd say they should have probably beaten Spurs. And... Yeah, I I don't think there's anything to worry about just yet. I think we need to hold off for a couple more months, let some players get back to fitness, let United play some more normal matches, and see where this team is at around Christmas time. And that's what I'm going to be doing, so I encourage you guys to do the same. Yeah, I agree with that. I think this was sort of exactly, if you had asked me what was going to happen in this match, I would. I think this is exactly what I would have guessed. Arsenal were the better side. The margin was not that large. The differences uh, were set-piece execution, which we're notably terrible at, and they're notably very good at. And their midfielders can turn on the ball and penetrate centrally, and they have effective strikers, and we didn't until the 68th minute. I still see... Every match this season, I've seen huge steps forward from last season. I think get healthy, have a few things click. I think we're very close to being very good. Awesome. Should we do no details? Yeah, we'll do a quick no details. No details. This is the segment where we allow you to ask anything you like, but with one caveat. The question cannot be about football. Case, you did the no details once again this week, and so you get to choose the question for us. Okay, uh, we have a question from Talk of the Red Devils, and they ask, if you have any, what are your favorite cocktails? We have another question from Asakare, whose question is top three alcoholic beverages. So I think we'll, we'll make this top three alcoholic beverages, and one of them has to be a cocktail. Oh, I'm not a cocktail guy. I'm, a, I'm very much a beer guy. <laughs> um, okay, I guess so then I'll pick two beers. Um, my favorite beer is a toss-up between Cronenberg 1664 Blanc. It's a French wheat beer. I tend to like wheat beers more than other beers. Um, so if I ever walk into a random pub and I've never read or I've never had any of the beers on the menu, I'll try to get a wheat beer. Um, and the other one is Guinness, which I feel like is a classic. Like I know it can be polarizing, but it's personally one of my favorites. Um, yeah, and then I guess... Number three, for a cocktail, that's a little bit difficult. I mean, I feel like this is a little controversial, but I like a Caesar or a Bloody Mary. Um, I like a rum and Coke, um, which is pretty basic, I think. Yeah, I'm not a rum and Coke guy. I'm not going to lie. Rum and Coke, not my You're thing. You're not? No. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, it has to be brown rum, but or like spice rum, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I don't dislike rum. Honestly, I, I'm not sure there's really... Actually, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I was going to say I'm not sure there's a liquor I don't like, but that just comes off the wrong way. <laughs> um, I don't mean it like that. Uh, okay, so cocktail, final choice? Or are you just going to go with a, a, a list of ones you I'm tolerate? trying to think of something more interesting than like rum and coke or a Caesar. Although a Caesar, I guess, is not that bad. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like mixed drinks with tequila can also be really good. Um, so that would be something with tequila and a fruit juice that I really like. Mango probably would be my top choice. Okay. Would be really good. Okay, good answers. Good answers. I like those. I also like wheat beers. 
Um, I like IPAs, but in terms of like brands that I drink, I drink a lot of Stella, drink a lot of Red Stripe, which is not either of those beers, but I just enjoy Red Stripe. <laughs> um, Modelo. Uh, Modelo is a good beer. Yeah, I really like Modelo. Like that's a that's one I can just kind of like. Do you know it's now the out. most sold beer in America? Yeah, it is. I did know that. Um, I, yeah, I read an article about that recently. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, I mean, yeah, I won't get into like the Bud Light boycott and the whole thing around that is ridiculous. But I do think Modelo is a better beer than Bud Light. So as much as I don't <laughs> agree with the reasons why people cut Bud Light, yeah, agreed. Um, otherwise, what do I drink? Um, okay, in terms of cocktails, I like like tequila and mezcal. Like if I'm gonna get like a nice cocktail, definitely those. I had nice uh, a couple years ago. I went to Portugal and had a port and tonic, which is like port wine and tonic. <laughs> really, that that's hits. so interesting. That stuff hits. It's good. Um, not that I drink that often though. I don't really keep port wine in the house. But um, otherwise. Oh, actually, you'll be interested in this. Uh, I, when I was in Goa earlier this year in India, I tried Fenny, which is um, like, really yeah, <laughs> like I like this cashew or uh, sometimes I think they make it from coconut liquor. That stuff is wild. <laughs> yeah, it's delicious. It tastes so distinct from like other liquor. Um, so that was cool. Yeah, it's also like the highest alcohol proportion drink. Is it really? I didn't like, know it's, that. It's really high. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty, I'm, I'm not a super picky. Again, that's going to come off wrong. I was about to say, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a super picky drinker. Uh, but you can. Yeah. So, uh, Fanny has about 43 to 45% alcohol yeah, volume on high. average, which is incredibly high. That's high. Um, basically anything that's not like, I'm just not a, a, a whiskey or a scotch guy, bourbon, anything like that. Um, oh, I don't mind those personally, but I don't really like gins and tonics. Oh, I'm a, a gin and tonic is probably like the cocktail I drink the most, <laughs> just because like it's you go to a bar and like you know the bartender will know yeah. how to make it. Like I'm I'm not the kind of person who like wants to make a bartender do a lot of work. <laughs> um, which is not to say that I don't like cocktails. It's just generally where I'm at with that. I also like wine. Um, like I said, I'm an equal opportunity drinker. Um, <laughs> Uh, what else? Okay, we'll, we'll do another question. Um, let's see. We have a question from Alex. Uh, best Arsenal goal scored yesterday? No, come on. We can't answer that. I'll answer come it. On. I don't mind. Um, definitely the first goal. Because the second goal was lame. And the third goal was like the game was already decided. So definitely the opener for, for or the equalizer for Arsenal. Definitely the, the best of the three. Um, it has to be an Arsenal goal from this game. Yeah, I think so. Best goal Arsenal scored. Okay, yesterday. well, you know what? You know what? I'm gonna be a good sport and pick Jesus's goal. It is a great goal because it's the o- it's the only one that didn't ruin my day. <laughs> it's kind of nice to see Jesus get rewards for how good he is when usually he's just a garbage finisher. Um, and <laughs> on on another note, like, no, I don't know. I'm trying to. Yeah, I mean, I don't like Arsenal, obviously, but I do actually quite like Gabriel Jesus, and the goal didn't hurt as much as the other two, so that's what I'm going to have to choose. 
Yeah. Oh, that's we didn't actually talk about the goals. Um, quick review of the goals uh, that we conceded. Um, <laughs> uh, minute fifty three. Minute fifty three. In the middle of no details. If you didn't tune in, if you didn't tune into no, de- this is like you got to tune into no details. This is actually by definition the worst no details ever. Yeah, this is plenty of details. Yeah, this is a lot of detail. Um, first goal. Anthony shouldn't be pressing Gabrielle. It should be Martial. As a result, Gabrielle is able to pass through. Uh, to Havertz, who I think lays off, or no, to maybe to Martinelli. The, who is the ball to, to Havertz off. is on either way, but Zinchenko is free. Yeah, is the key exactly. Thing, because Anthony comes off him to press Gabriel. Yeah. Anthony presses Gabriel, which leaves Zinchenko free, which will create the overload, allows them to play inside, um, I want to say, to Enketia. Then Enketia plays Martinelli. Martinelli cuts it back for Odegaard. Uh, here, Casemiro kind of gets lost. He probably should cut off the lane to Enketia. And then um, Ericsson, Ericsson loses, loses Odegaard. Odegaard. Yeah, Ericsson loses It's Odegaard. a tough spot for Ericsson because he's looking at this uh, gap that's widened between Lissandro and Dalo, and he feels he has to fill it. Uh, but I think actually the right thing to do here is to get on Odegaard because no one's actually making the run into that vacated space, so there isn't really much threat being created. And it's a transition scenario, so you don't really have to worry about covering that base um, in the event of possession settling and then them going again. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a small error from Ericsson and then a weird sort of team-wide marking error yeah. um, of passing men that I think starts from Martial. Yeah. And then a little bit from Casemiro as well. A lot of a lot of small errors, nothing absolutely catastrophic from anybody. Which is arguably worse than one big catastrophic yes. error. I'll, I'll add this much. Yes. Generally speaking, when we talk about stuff like goal, these kinds of goals where it's a series of small errors, I am generally of the opinion that the first error is the largest error because once one error has been made, it, you're basically asking somebody else on the team to make a, like a, a big corrective play that's not necessarily in line with their role. Um, yeah. So, I'll add another thing. I mean, a lot of people like to judge defenders based on errors leading to goals. I don't really think that's a good methodology because... What you're actually judging is the opposition's finishing. Um, Odegaard takes a great shot here. If Odegaard misses this, we don't talk about this play at all. Um, Probably. Do. I think we do. We might bring it up on the podcast, but... I think we do. <laughs> mo- the vast majority of the of the public sphere doesn't talk about these plays that don't lead to goals. Um, and so the real issue is errors that lead to potential for the opposition yeah. to create chances. Um, and so these are a lot of small errors that allow the opposition to create a chance. But ultimately, it becomes more topical because Odegaard scores the chance. Yep. Yep. Agreed on that. Um, Second goal is a set piece that they they nailed us on the entire match. Yep. Like, they kept having a free man, and Katia and Rice were both standing near the, the back post on corners from both sides, and they were hitting it at them. And a couple of times, Katia and Rice both got on the ball from these corners. Rice gets on the ball, gets a shot off. The shot has, like, .04 XG. Um, but it deflects off Evans, really unlucky, ends up in a goal. Um, while it is unlucky for it to end up in a goal, I think I might have said this earlier in the podcast, it was still bad set-piece defending, and so it's hard to say United didn't deserve to concede from it. Yeah, I think United definitely deserved to concede from it, because United's set-piece defensive structure is highly exploitable, and Arsenal... You know, had a bunch of corners in this match, and they ran the same routine multiple times, and one of the times it worked. That's generally how it goes if you have a good set-piece routine against a compromised defensive structure. Um, 
could players have done better? Could Maguire have blocked off the near post? Um, yeah, but again, just don't let them win first contact. Once you lose first contact at a set piece, you have functionally already conceded, whether the goal, ball goes in the goal or not. Like that is the thing you're actually systematically able to prevent. Um, yeah. Two quick notes on this as well. Um, many people were blaming Onana for this. Onana can't read that deflection. That's a bit absurd. Yeah, um, a lot of people were blaming bringing on Maguire and Evans as a center back duo to see out this match. While to some extent it would have been nice to replace Maguire this summer, United have so many injuries at center back. Their fourth and fifth choice center backs are not going to be world class players. I know a lot of people were citing City here. The reason why City have four, five, six world class center backs or good center backs is because they don't have fullbacks. Um, they they don't have fullbacks in their squad. So when their center backs get injured, they just bring the fullbacks in and then find new players to play at fullback. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. And then we'll... Third goal. Yeah, go ahead. Third goal is not Dalo's fault. He slides in. Jesus turns him. United are overcommitting to try and get this match back. Rashford should have committed the foul there um, when he loses the duel, but... It's it's a difficult one, and it doesn't really matter that much. Yeah, it's completely irrelevant. This goal happens because United abandoned the rest defense structures, which is what you do when you're chasing a game, like with two, like with like probably ninety seconds left. That's just what you do. I I don't really care about this goal at all. Um, yep. Awesome. We'll do one more no details so that we actually finish off with no details. <laughs> Aaron, we have a question from Oliver. Daloon? Am I saying that right? I apologize if I'm not. I'm going to guess this is an Irish name. That's my guess. I think that's an Irish name. Not sure. Oliver asks, who is your favorite Batman and why is it Michael Keaton's nipples cameo? Do you have a favorite Batman, Aaron? A favorite Batman movie? I've not watched the Batman movies, but Christian Bale and Robert Pattinson are two actors that I really like. So I suspect it would be one of the You two. haven't watched the Batman movies? I know, I haven't seen the Batman movies. I know, I know. It's a big it's a big lapse in uh That's brutal. Man. I, I generally don't go for superhero movies, but i I know the Batman yeah. ones are supposed to be really, really good, so one of these days I'm just gonna sit and watch them. I would say they're of like a high enough quality. Specifically two of the three in the Dark Knight trilogy and the most recent Batman. To, to transcend the genre of superhero movie and just be very good films. Um, yes, with Pattinson. Okay, yeah, that's what, I, that's what I've heard. So, And I mean, I generally really like Christopher Nolan films as well, so I should go yeah. back and watch those. Yeah, honestly... Can you hear that siren? No. I'm going to wait because I can hear it. I think it's going to get picked up. <laughs> that's because I didn't see Batman. Yeah, they're coming <laughs> to get you. Um... <laughs> Yeah, okay, honestly, the Nolans are good. I actually prefer the the more recent um, Pattinson one. I, I think it's just more of an all-around film. I think it does more with the world. Um, doesn't spend as much time with Bruce Wayne as I would have liked, but otherwise, it's just like visually a work of art and awesome. It's like more like a detective thriller than anything else, Aaron. So I, I highly, highly recommend um yeah okay that, that's my answer that that's that we will call it uh, a week and an episode and we will see you 
next week with a discussion of Sofian Amrabat and Sergio Reguilon. Awesome. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details. You can follow us at Devils ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.